Hello and welcome back to COM 2110, Sports Media and Communication. And in this penultimate lecture, we will be talking about sports media and agenda setting. So first, we will actually define what agenda setting is. And then once we do that, we'll talk about the importance of agenda setting. And then we'll get into different types of agenda setting, as well as sort of something that's adjacent to agenda setting, which is called gatekeeping. And then we will um, sort of end that with a discussion about how agenda setting affects the modern sports media process. So really quick, what do you think is the important thing to get from this lecture? What's the important information to get out of this lecture? You basically just know the title and a little bit of what we will cover in this lecture, but you probably assume at this point that what agenda setting is, is important to know. So simply because I'm telling you about agenda setting and I've mentioned it in multiple instances in some way, either subconsciously or consciously, there's this thinking that, well, Steve thinks it's important, so maybe it's important to know. That's kind of the idea behind agenda setting itself. Agenda setting refers to the link between what media says is important and what the public thinks is important. But this really isn't about persuasion or anything like that, or the news media trying to tell people what to think. The idea is that there's so much reality or news in the world every single day that's happening every single day, journalists and editors and writers can't possibly transfer all of it to the public. Think of a bouncer at the door of a super popular nightclub. There's usually a line because too many people want to be in the club. So it's the bouncer's job to make sure they only let in the number of people that are legally allowed to be in there at once or who are legally allowed to go into the club that are of age. And if it's a really exclusive club, maybe they decide who's worthy of going in. So in a similar way, of all the possible things happening in the world, journalists try to figure out what's newsworthy enough to basically be let into the club. They select events and topics that they will include or emphasize in the news. And this idea that the media is only presenting certain parts of reality actually dates back 99 years to Walter Lippmann. He talked about how photographs are this sort of distorted reflection of reality that creates a pseudo-environment, okay? Photographs are a distorted reflection of reality creating a pseudo-environment. So the audience idea of Reality is based only in part on actual reality, but because we can't simultaneously experience everything that's happening in the world, we have to rely on media, and he was talking about photographs, to fill in those other parts of our reality. But you could probably see how this pseudo-environment or sort of perceived reality, despite it being talked about a hundred years ago, is still applicable today. Does it sound familiar to anyone? Does this idea of his public opinion book sound familiar? This uh, uh, distorted reflection of reality coming from photographs? Did he predict Instagram, perhaps? Think of what influencers or even just your friends post online. Some of my research looks at how people use media um, and how media 
influences or contributes to psychological health. And there's been a whole bunch of research that shows that Instagram is pretty bad for mental health, specifically because we constantly see other people's carefully chosen posts. They're distorted versions of reality or a pseudo environment. Uh, the account on the screen, by the way, this Cali Beach girl right here, uh, this was completely made up uh, by researchers who actually wanted to see if they could utilize services where you could buy followers that are bot accounts and grow a following that way. So they hired a model and they just had her take a whole bunch of pictures in one day and then they carefully selected when they were going to post them, pretending like they were different days. And they ended up getting enough followers to actually secure two different brand deals for the account. Uh, it's since been taken down, but you could uh, read about it if you want at MediaKicks.com. MediaKicks, the kicks is K-I-X.com. Now, just to give a quick sense of how someone traditionally determines that this phenomenon of agenda setting exists, let's briefly look at the original study about agenda setting. So it was called the Chapel Hill Study by McCombs and Shaw in 1972. And what they decided to do was look at the 1968 election, uh, presidential election, between Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon. And they wanted to see if the coverage of the two campaigns actually influenced the public's perceptions of important social issues. And so to do this, they used two methods. The first method was that they analyzed the content of local papers, television, and radio stations for three weeks during the campaign. So they used content analysis. They analyzed the content. Essentially, they just counted the number of times each subject or topic was reported on in these different stories, essentially just tallying them up. We've talked about content analysis before. Um, they wanted to know what issues were receiving the most media attention or coverage. On top of that, they also went around and asked people this question. Regardless of what politicians say, what are the two or three main things which you think government should concentrate on doing something about? Okay, so basically like a survey or an interview. We've talked about that before, too. And lo and behold, it ended up that people's perceptions of what was important were basically identical to the issues that were covered most in the news media, regardless of partisanship. And this study has been repeated and supported with similar findings all over the place in all kinds of different contexts. Basically, the stories or ideas or people that the media talks about the most, whether it's newspapers, TV, or online, will end up being thought of as most important to the audience of that media. But what's the actual power of that? Like, who cares that what audience thinks is portrayed in the media is actually important? Well, there's plenty of reasons it's important to know how news media can inform people's opinions. Uh, personally, I care about this power that media can have on people. Um, in my own research, I try to figure out how powerful political statements and activism by athletes, uh, how that can affect people. Not to mention, what are the motions behind someone retorting to an image like this, which is Black Lives Matter printed on the court during the uh, uh, NBA pandemic playoff bubble in Disney? What would make people respond to that with the phrase stick to sports? Well, agenda setting would suggest that the more that the players speak out about racial injustice, 
perhaps the more that sports media and sort of regular news media as well would feel it's newsworthy to cover. And if so, that could adjust public perception about the importance of racism and racial injustice. So that's just one topic that shows the potential pro-social power that this concept highlights. For another example that's not sports-based, what if there's a certain subject and the news media for months mostly only covers that subject when it's critiqued or when an issue arises? So let's pretend that the news a person consumes only discusses mail-in ballots for voting in the negative, like anecdotal evidence of a person forging a signature, and perhaps not the logistics of the process to explain why mail-in ballots might take longer to count. Agenda setting would suggest that a person might think that election fraud is an important issue. Okay, so a couple of examples there for you. But why? Why would audiences perceive the most talked about stories as important? Well, there's a few different reasons. So one big one is that, as mentioned, we can't be everywhere at once. And so things happen and we miss them. So we often rely on journalism and news media to catch us up on things happening in the world or orient us towards them um, that we aren't there to experience ourselves. So we have a need for orientation. In addition, people often rely on news media to also introduce them to new or emerging events or topics. So if the news is talking about it, it must be important. Think of like a new draft prospect in any sport that you follow. Where do you go to find more information about them? Probably ESPN or another sports news site to see what's recently been written about that person or what video there is of that person, right? But this need for orientation can actually depend on a few certain things. So for one thing, the audience actually needs to think that the issue is personally relevant to them. If not, there might be less of an effect. Um, say you root for a team that might have a high draft pick. So this really good draft prospect, there might be more of relevance for you to want to know who this player is. Also, if the audience feels uncertain about how much info about the story or issue they know, uh, they'll feel the need to rely on the news more, thus a stronger effect. So more uncertainty would mean a stronger effect. Relatedly, if the audience feels like they have little experience with the topic, the effect might be stronger. It's a little bit different. So it's called obtrusiveness. All right. Um, alternatively, if you know a lot about something, you don't need the media to tell you about it. Um, it would feel obtrusive in this case. So something like mansplaining, kind of. All right, so now I'll give you an example of all of these. The need for orientation, the relevance, the uncertainty, and the obtrusiveness. So I'm a huge Celtics fan, if you couldn't really tell by the shirt I am wearing. Um, and I watch every single game. But if I missed one, I'd have a high need for orientation to find out what happened. And the relevance would be high, too, because obviously I'm a fan of the team. But depending on the source, the other two factors might differ. So because I watch every game, my certainty on who the players are and their tendencies is probably pretty high, right? I know the players pretty well. Um, I know how they usually perform. So if I watch a two-minute highlight video on, say, the NBA's YouTube page or ESPN's YouTube page, it might feel kind of obtrusive or just too generic, just showing the scoring plays and that's about it, right? 
And so instead, maybe I go to a recap from a local beat reporter who has a little bit more nuance in there, more of the thing that I'm looking for that's not going to feel as obtrusive. Or maybe I go, there's uh, a guy on YouTube who does Celtics highlights that are really, really good called Timmy. He only does Celtics highlights. Maybe I go to him because I know he's going to focus on the Celtics more than the other team, right? So again, high certainty, less obtrusiveness, um, and that might have more of an effect than just simple NBA.com highlight video. Speaking of highlight videos, uh, now that you're aware of what agenda setting is and a little of how it works, let's see how good you are at identifying what agenda is being set. And we're going to do this with a clip where there isn't even a reporter or someone conveying the news to you, uh, besides uh, Mike Gorman and Brian Scalabrini, the announcers for this game. So let's take a look at this last bit of a highlight video for this Celtics-Wizards regular season game from a couple of years ago. The full video is about seven minutes long, but an NBA game is 48 minutes in regulation. So the editors at House of Highlights, they had to choose what information from the game was worthy of being presented to the YouTube viewer. So what I want you to look at are what types of plays are shown or aren't shown in this video. And why do you think they chose to edit in or edit out those plays? And if you're just listening, think of pretty much any highlight video you've ever seen for a sport, okay? What plays are shown and what aren't shown, and why do you think they chose to edit in or edit out those plays? So I'll give you a hint if you are watching, keep an eye on the score. Are we seeing all of the points being scored? After, especially after the All-Star break. Yeah, no question. Oh, oh come on! And the foul! Walker, floater, nailed it. Uh, Kimba Walker just isolates you one on one at the top of the key. Beal pulls up for three. Wow. Uh, you got to be up the floor on that. Good ball movement. Now they got to get a stop. Beal, open lane to the basket. He goes all the way, and he will get it. A chance for a three-point play. Beal sends it back to Bertans. Corner Westbrook for three. Oh, that's a tough shot. That's a big shot is what it is. Sells looking for the three themselves. Walker. Oh, big shot to Off the bounce, spins into the lane. Tatum, the fall away. Got it. Underneath Lopez. Hits a hook shot. Lopez again. Kicks it to the corner. On a cut to Beal. The two. Celtics call a quick timeout. Whether it's catch and shoot or off the dribble or isolation. Tatum takes it to the basket, gets an easy two. Make the inbounds pass. Does so to Tice. Gets it to Tatum. Passed up to three. Takes it in there for two and gets two. No foul. Beal. Stepped out. Boston ball. That's how you do it. 
Loops it in. Nice play by Pritchett. Gets it back in the hands of Tatum. Tatum spins on the baseline, goes hard to the basket, gets two and a foul. He does. Excellent double team. He puts up a shot anyway, and the Celtics escape. Okay, so what plays were primarily shown? I mean, I kind of give it away, but points. They were showing all the scoring plays. They showed a lot of how the score changed. But they only showed certain scores. So what didn't they show? Free throws. Foul shots. They didn't show pretty much any of those. I think they showed one. Uh, why do you think that is? Probably because they're less interesting to show in a highlight video. It's just a guy not moving and shooting without a defender trying to block the shot. In a real game, every point matters, obviously, but House of Highlights had a limited amount of time, so they chose to skip the free throws and show more interesting shots like Bradley Beal making ridiculous athletic plays or Jason Tatum's game-winning layup. And I'm sure most people watching this video would rather see those great plays instead, right? So technically, even something as inconsequential as this comes from someone choosing what to show and what not to show. That's sort of agenda setting in a nutshell. So the other main thing that I noticed, and it would be hard to tell this without actually watching the game because it's not really in the video, is that the Celtics were really lucky to win that game. So they were losing by one with 15 seconds left after Tatum made the layup and fell down. So he makes the layup and falls down, and the Wizards player is trying to inbound the ball. So what happened next is that a Wizards player turned the ball over when he stepped out of bounds because he slipped on the sweat where Tatum fell. Because they didn't have time in between the play for the guy with the mop to come out and sweep up the mess. And so he actually fell where Tatum had fallen and slipped out of bounds because of that. It was just kind of like an accident. But the person that edited the video decided not to include that play that was pretty pivotal if you actually watched the game. So why they didn't include it, maybe they didn't actually watch the game and they were just sort of looking at the play-by-play -play after the fact and just made the video because they're an intern just editing all of the videos for that day together. Who knows? But that's part of this process of, you know, what is included and what is not included that we'll get to in a little bit, um, definitely in the process of gatekeeping. Let's go back to thinking about which plays were included. And not only can we consider the classic agenda setting idea, the media tells us what to think about. We can also go one step further and say that the media tells us how to think about so this idea is referred to as attribute agenda setting or second level agenda setting. Uh, if the first level is the specific subject or the object of the story, say a game between two NBA teams, the second level refers to the attributes or characteristics of that object. So what's focused on in that story. In our case, it was the scoring. So in any news story, some attributes get a lot of attention, while others get little to no attention. And you can probably see how that's impactful when it comes to media's agenda-setting ability. Let's go back to the Celtics-Wizards highlight. The slip-and-play out-of-bounds I mentioned, that's a second-level attribute of that game. 
but it wasn't the focus of the coverage, so few people think about that part. And we can take that a step further. Think about what parts of any sport and event are usually shown in highlights. In basketball, again, it's almost entirely buckets, maybe some good defensive plays. And so second-level agenda setting would suggest that, well, most of the plays show a good offensive play that overpowers or triumphs over a defensive play, that could lead viewers to value offense over defense. Or think of football coverage. We usually see replays of field goals and touchdowns, obviously, right? All the scores. People probably think that scoring is important. But is ESPN more likely to show you the one-yard QB sneak or a 60-yard TD bomb? Probably the long TD pass, right? It may be both if the sneak was, you know, Tom Brady or uh, it was a playoff game or something like that. Or you'll see both if the program or the person relaying the highlight is fantasy football focused, where every single score matters equally. So on top of the media being this sort of independent variable that can influence the audience, media can also be a dependent variable in a way. In other words, there could be any number of factors that actually influence how or even if a story or information is presented. Now, when you do Daily Case 15, one thing to think about isn't just how the media framed things in that case in Fantastic Lives about the Duke lacrosse scandal. Now think about what attributes both the media and the director of the documentary herself focused on or highlighted in her documentary. The director of the documentary has a very specific vision of how she wants the story to be told. So think about what is highlighted in that when you're watching. Uh, and do the same when you're watching or reading or listening to your reflection media as well. So a second ago, I mentioned fantasy football and how that's going to dictate what types of plays they show you, too. And I also mentioned earlier about potentially, you know, the intern is putting together the highlight video, and that's why they didn't include the slip. Well, it turns out that all of those other factors that play into what's shown is also a concept that's researched often, and it's called gatekeeping. So the main thing here is who sets the media agenda. Or we try to think about what factors influence the people that actually do the agenda setting. For example, how people like journalists are influenced. So let's go back to that bouncer analogy I used at the beginning, the bouncer deciding who gets into the club. Well, the bouncer, besides worrying about who's getting in, also has to worry about a bunch of other things like max capacity or pleasing the club owners or even rowdy customers that are already inside, right? So in terms of what factors matter in choosing a story to cover, a couple of researchers named Graeber and Dunaway have come up with five considerations that journalists use to decide if they should report on a topic. So the first criterion is strong impact. The audience will likely pay attention more if the story is applicable or feels impactful to them. And this could be framing a story as though, you know, it could happen to anyone or that they personally are affected by the story. Um, but going too far with that frame can sometimes reduce the real significance of the event. Another uh, is violence, conflict, disaster, scandal. You know, why do people always slow down on the highway to go by an accident or when someone's pulled over? curious to see what's going on. Same thing happens in the news. Those stories get a lot of attention. 
Third thing journalists consider when choosing stories to cover is familiarity. So similar to the first one, stories will be more popular if they feel relatable or feel like familiar situations. Uh, and also we retain information better about people we're already familiar with. So the personal lives of celebrities are often popular stories. That's why, um, you know, we love gossip about celebrities because we are already familiar with those celebrities, but also gossip is something that we just do in everyday life. So if we get to do it about celebrities, it's even better. Fourth, and similar to familiarity, stories that deal in local affairs will be paid closer attention to than something that's international. Uh, feeling physically closer to something probably plays into that. So, you know, we are a school in Boston. If someone from the Bruins happens to get traded away, we might be more likely to be interested in that story than someone from, say, Chicago, something like that. Finally, uniqueness, something interesting. Um, while people feel like it needs to happen to them or feel relatable, it has to be a story that's not an everyday event. If it happened every day, who cares? So that was one concept of how specifically the agenda itself is based on considering the audience. Here's another concept that actually looks at those that are sending the agenda and how they themselves are influenced by something else. And uh, this, I feel like, is even more common in sports media than regular news media. Social media is such a huge part of sports these days. And, you know, we even talked about this uh, a few weeks ago, how traditional media tries to incorporate social media and new media into its process now. So intermedia agenda setting. Intermedia agenda setting deals with how media content is shaped by other media content. Originally, the idea was that, you know, there are some media leaders that can sort of set the agenda for other media. If we're talking about sports, the classic example would be ESPN, right? The worldwide leader in sports. So traditionally, if ESPN is covering something, other smaller outlets probably perceive that story to be about an important topic, and they would probably also devote resources to covering it. In this example on the screen, the local CBS Boston is reporting on an interview that occurs on the national televised Fox Business Network about AOC, how she was going to uh, release her Boston University transcripts after President Trump called her a poor student. But this was also developed back when places like ESPN or the New York Times absolutely dominated coverage and had all the resources and people were reading them and um, consuming them more than any other outlet. But now agenda setting and intermediate agenda setting have to be retooled a little bit because we're not just in this sort of old school, traditional, you know, mass media market anymore. Now we have social media and constant coverage and plethora of other outlets that people get information from. And so look at how AOC actually responded to the story on the left. She, instead of going to, you know, a journalist that she knows and doing an interview, she just tweets out, let's make a deal, Mr. President. You release your college transcript and I'll release mine. We'll see who was the better student. Loser has to fund the post office, right? So she just goes straight to social media instead of having to work through the traditional types of media. And think of Trump uh, 
on Twitter and all the followers that he had back in the day and how much the news media was just reporting on his social media use. Or if you're a sports fan, how many stories are about, you know, a player liking a post from another player on another team. ESPN dedicates full hours to discussing that type of thing now and gossiping about what that could mean. Not to mention, social media has its own built-in agenda-setting function that we all participate in. Anyone know what that might be? How do you think algorithms figure out what's trending? Simply, what's being discussed the most. And often when something starts trending, it gets picked up by other media channels that then report on it. So, the last thing I want to do is present a case that shows even more evidence that intermedia agenda setting, as well as those who set the agenda, has shifted uh, from back when these terms were originally conceived. So I want to show you something really interesting I found when I was researching the history of sports and social issues. So this man on the screen talking to that other completely random number 23 in the Bulls jersey there, is Craig Hodges. So Hodges was an NBA player, and he's a pretty good shooter. He won the NBA three-point contest three times. The only other player to do that is Larry Bird. But you probably know Larry Bird more than you do Craig Hodges. Only a couple of you might even know who Craig Hodges is. And even if you do, you might not even know him because of basketball. Now, if you want to find information on players that you don't know about, you can go to ESPN's website because they usually have player profiles, right? The worldwide leader in sports. And so he was on the Bulls. ESPN doesn't even have that information on his profile page, which is now on the screen. There is nothing there. On the right side are just stories that are related to simply the NBA in general, nothing about him at all. So... What he'll probably be most known for in history is for allegedly being blackballed by the league after being vocal and protesting to bring awareness to racism and systemic issues in African-American communities. In 1992, he expressed disappointment in the Bush administration's lack of focus on racial issues and criticized Michael Jordan for not using his platform to bring more awareness to social causes like racial injustice. So following his comments, no team offered him a contract, and he eventually sued the NBA for blackballing him. Now, does that sound a little familiar to someone you've probably heard of today? 24 years before Colin Kaepernick decided to kneel during the national anthem to bring awareness to the same structural and systemic racism concerns for people of color, Hodges went from NBA player to unemployed because he was a vocal advocate for the same issues. Yet... We can see here on Colin Kaepernick's page, it's loaded with information about him, whereas Hodges had nothing. There's hundreds of articles about Colin Kaepernick. There's even videos of people talking about Kaepernick, including a discussion involving NBA player LeBron James, who thinks that the NFL commissioner Roger Goodell needs to apologize about how things were handled when he became when he began kneeling. On top of that, the NBA suspended a different player in 1996, Mamad Abdul-Raouf, because he knelt during the national anthem. And there wasn't nearly as much coverage, and you probably didn't even know that. Now, sure, everything with Kaepernick has happened within the past, you know, six, seven years, but I'd argue that there's another media-related factor that has increased the perception of the importance of this type of story. And that would be hashtag take a knee. Hodges and Abdul Rauf didn't have social media, 
So when Hodges couldn't find a team to sign him, he had to rely on the mainstream news media to notice that and decide to write about it or to um, do video about it. I'm sure some people in the general public were upset about this, but how many if the media wasn't covering it like they would now? And what could they do about it? With Kaepernick, the first time he kneeled during a preseason game, no one actually said anything until after the game. It was a preseason game. I mean, even the NFL's initial response the next day was simply, quote, players are encouraged but not required to stand during the playing of the national anthem. That's it. It was just kind of a non-issue. But we have Twitter, and Kaepernick had Twitter. And the response from both sides was fast and furious after people posted clips of him kneeling. And so, like we said earlier in the semester, prior to social media, fans had to wait for TV cameras or sports reporters to bring awareness to any athlete that wanted to speak out or make some sort of political statement. But today, it can reach millions at any time through social media, and when something like that happens, it can be very polarizing, or um, when something controversial happens, athletes and fans don't shy away from expressing their feelings online. And in terms of who actually sets the agenda, as well as the whole idea of intermediate agenda setting, these responses to events or statements of support have reached beyond simply social media, and they make for a really complicated dynamic. So let's go back to this screenshot of an article that we've covered already, right? The, the shut up and dribble case. Laura Ingram told LeBron James to shut up and dribble. He went to the hoop. That's what the article is about. This shows just how intertwined and weird things are now. So at first, this article seems pretty straightforward, just a you know normal, everyday article. But now you can think about this from a more sort of critical media perspective. So the article is from NPR.org, which is a newer version of NPR, which was originally the public radio of the U.S., and they're reporting on what has happened since the Ingram comments. And in it, they embed a tweet from Sports Illustrated, which originally was Sports Magazine, which has a clip from Fox News, the cable outlet, where Ingram responds to LeBron's original tweet, in part to his original tweet, which itself was in response to a tweet from Trump. So we have all of these different intertwined pieces of media coming together for what seems like a simple article, but really is a bunch of different types converging into one. So I've been researching this type of thing a while, and I have a few questions about it all that haven't been answered, and I'm going to share them with you. Maybe you can answer them for me, or maybe I'll research them later and tell you what the answers are. But the first thing is, can athletes set the agenda? So do fans actually think athletes' issues are important? What type of coverage they need to be able to set the agenda themselves? Is social media enough? Or are demonstrations during the National Anthem still more impactful? We've seen both instances, the National Anthem, as well as you know the players from Missouri. So both things have been effective in the past. Along with that, as technologies improve and become more accessible, any organization can act similarly to that of a media organization. In other words, organizations have access to their own media platforms now and have the ability for basically anyone to produce top-notch content. So organizations can consider that, you know, if teams have the same outlets as journalists, can they also set the agenda? Second, to what extent does the public or audience dictate where coverage goes these days? 
if no one watched the NBA, would there still be coverage of the type of activism that they promote? Or think of the NFL. Originally, it seemed like they really cared about punishing the players that were kneeling during the national anthem. But recently, there seems to be this push, push towards a more inclusive environment. You know, if anyone strategizes simply to make money, it's the NFL. So maybe their research shows that the type of images that we see in the NBA have the potential to bring in more people than they have to push them away. And finally, can online communities single-handedly change the agenda? Think of how an entire subreddit uh, single-handedly made GameStop stock soar and brought to light critiques of practices in the finance world. Or do you think there would have been a suspension for Kyrie Irving if no one had seen his Instagram story where he was promoting an anti-Semitic film? And no one complained about it? Eh, probably not. So these are questions I still have that, you know, maybe you have answers to, but um, if you want to, I'm happy to discuss them further. Now, you might have a question, perhaps like, does mass media's agenda-setting ability still exist? You know, is agenda-setting still a thing? And yes, the current media environment is pretty fractured and niche, meaning there's a lot of different platforms and technologies where people can get information when it's convenient for them, and the information can be tailored to personal preferences. We even have targeted ads now. But even so, there's only a few media conglomerates, and they all own a lot of outlets. So I've talked about ESPN. They're owned by Disney, who also owns the ABC network, among other things, including Star Wars and Marvel and all of that. So the question now might not just be, can agenda setting still happen, but maybe who can set the agenda, and does the public have any say in that agenda? So... The next time that you're checking your apps and you see that something's trending on Twitter or wherever, think to yourself, is this actually important? Or do people just think it's important because everyone's talking about it? And the next time that you see a story about, you know, what are the Warriors going to do with Jordan Poole? Or why do they talk about the Lakers so much? And you say to yourself, they always talk about them or they always talk about Jordan Poole. There's other teams that are still in the playoffs and Jordan Poole doesn't even start. Well, remember... If a player is going to be in the top 15 of jersey sales for an entire year, media outlets will probably take that into account when choosing which players to cover. And so if Jordan Poole is going to be number 15 in jersey sales, ESPN is going to think that they should talk about him a little bit. So that's all I have for you on agenda setting. In the next lecture, we'll talk about sort of the other theory that people always use in news media called framing theory. And your daily case is specifically geared towards talking about how things are framed in media. And then also just a reminder to make sure that you have selected your reflection media that you are going to write about next week.